<laughs> but, uh, we kind of prepped ourselves for it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we're we're on, ladies. All right. All right. So here we go. Uh, greetings and salutations to all my followers and listeners and supporters of this podcast. Welcome to the first episode of Speak to the Mic. I am your host, Marlon Joseph. This has been a long time coming. I definitely have been contemplating back and forth about whether or not to start this podcast, but if there's ever a time to have a podcast specifically zoning in on the issues that we're dealing with in the Black community and what we can do as individuals and a collective effort to basically zone in on those issues and figure those issues out, the time is now. And so uh, without further ado, I'd like to just briefly introduce my two panel guests for today's episode. This week's episode is focusing in on the importance of mental health in the Black community. And what better way to do so than to have two beautiful Black women who are professionals in this area who can specifically talk to uh, about those different issues that we deal with as it pertains to our mental health and anxiety. Uh, joining us today, obviously, is the two professionals from the University of West Georgia, Dr. Olivia Uwamahora Williams, PhD, LPC, NCC, Dr. Mary Hostat. Mm-hmm. PhD, LPC, and NCC. Mm-hmm. And just for clarity, uh, folks, I just want to make sure that I make sure I let you all know that this is an unfiltered and unapologetic podcast. So we will be talking about issues that's most near and dear to us and those issues that we can rectify immediately versus the things that we can obviously uh, take more time to kind of iron out for the most part. And so dealing with mental health, obviously, I would like to start off by asking a question, ladies. Uh, can Starting with Dr. Olivia Uwamahora-Williams, who I, let me also make sure I specify this, is not also, is not only a licensed professional counselor, but she's also the beautiful wife of mine and the beautiful mother of my daughter, of our daughter. So I want to make sure I put that out there before I get yelled at from any of my listeners that know me <laughs> and uh, will give me an earful about that. So. Want to make sure I put that out there. Uh, But just to start us, um, I'll start with you, Dr. Williams. Can you kind of share with us your professional area of expertise as it pertains to mental health? Yes. So I, as you mentioned, uh, I am a licensed professional counselor here in the state of Georgia um, and also a certified, um, a a national certified counselor through NBCC. And as far as my professional professional background is concerned is my educational lineage. I have my bachelor's in psychology uh, from the University of Tennessee. I have my master's in counseling specifically in clinical mental health from the University of Memphis. And I have my PhD in counselor education and supervision from the University of Central Florida. And so as a professional mental health um, individual, I have been practicing as a clinician for almost a decade. <laughs> I can't believe it's been been almost in a decade uh, and also as you mentioned I'm, I, I'm also an assistant professor and I've been in academia for the last five years um, and as far as clinically my area of expertise is working with children adolescents families and couples so essentially that's where my passion lies but obviously I have had the opportunity to work in pretty much every setting you can think of inpatient outpatient partial on hospital programs I've worked with gamut from, you know, children as young as 
three and four uh, and adults as old. I think my oldest client thus far has been, uh, I think 85 was oldest. Um, so I've done couple, like individual group, couple, everything you can possibly think of um, and every possible presenting concern. <laughs> and so um, going on almost 10 years, I've had the privilege to work with a lot of people uh, working through, you know, difficult times and things like that. But as I mentioned, my heart uh, lies with working with children, adolescents, families, and couples. That's very much so needed in, in our black community. So I greatly appreciate your, your, your expertise in this area and, and just your thoughts overall when it comes to the concerns, issues that we have uh, pertaining to our children in the black community. So thank you for that. Uh, Dr. Mary Hofstadt, you also mm -hmm. share with us your area of expertise as it pertains to mental health. Yeah, so, um, you know, you'll find, as I say, a lot of this is going to be very similar to Dr. Williams um, in my background. So I also am a licensed professional counselor in the state of Georgia. I'm also a National Border Board Certified Counselor. Um, and so that's really the licensure and certification background that I have. Um, I'm also a certified associate for trauma professionals working with children specifically. Um, and so with that being said, a lot of my background is grounded in that I work with children specifically who've experienced child abuse, sexual abuse, as well as mothers, um, and who also experience home insecurity. So that's really my niche, my specialty, um, working with trauma and, and the type of treatment that I provide is play therapy. Um, and I know sometimes people are like play therapy. Um, I'm not just playing with children. Um, <laughs> I'm literally using a technique to um, get further insight. That's the way that children speak. They don't verbally speak. And so the way that they uh, address things that they're uh, problematic for them or they're concerned about is through their play. You, you'll find a lot of children engage in that imaginary play. So that's really the, the focus of my um, my specialty as it relates to also my educational background, my undergrad, similar to Dr. Williams is in psychology at Indiana State University, my master's in clinical mental health counseling at Auburn University, and my PhD um, is in uh, counselor education and practice, and it's from Georgia State University. And so that's, you know, a lot of my, my education, the experience I've got, um, and let me see what else would you inquired about. Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. I think a lot of it's grounded in multiculturalism, social justice. So that's kind of the gamut of the research I do, uh, specifically looking at multiracial individuals. Um, and so I identify as a Black kid, and so primarily Black and Mexican. And, I, I, and my interest is that and how that shows up. Um, but any marginalized group is what I really focus on as well. Yeah, absolutely. Even focusing in on that multiculturalism aspect of it, I think it's very important to understand that the minorities of this country have been disenfranchised for, you know, time after time again. And so dealing with those same issues that we've been dealing with in the past today, that is very important that we, we do zone in on multiculturalism and the importance of, of, of it in, as it pertains to mental health and dealing with those issues that the minorities do deal with, not just Black people, but obviously the Hispanic uh, community as well. And so uh, I do thank you for that. I appreciate your expertise and, and just your efforts overall in mental health because we need it more now than ever. Um, and so just want to ask you all too that um, with this pandemic affecting us in so many different ways, can you speak to the counselors like yourselves who are doing those necessary things to help um, who have been seeking counseling during troubling times like this because obviously with the pandemic on top of a lot of this 
racial inequality and police brutality that's happening across the country, and not even just here in America, but just all over the world, can you all speak to what different things that you all are, um, as far as information, what different things you're lending out to those who are seeking counseling at a, at a time like this? I'll start with you, Dr. Williams. Uh, so a lot of the clients that I'm that I've been working with, I have maintained, you know, my work with them. Obviously, we're doing we're maintaining social distance, but everything is being, you know, had to transition from working with clients in person to doing telemental health. And uh, I'm pretty sure, it's similar to what Dr. Hostad would touch on, the clients that I'm I have been actively working with have never done counseling uh virtually so that was you know transitioning that prepping um clients to get used to not being in the same space to do work uh and part of you know the the, the cornerstone of counseling a health of successful counseling uh, process is that relationship and being in a space together being able to read body language being in the same space and developing that relationship is critical so to go from in-person counseling to transition into virtual has had, you know, we had to have a conversation about that. So just transitioning that piece. Um, but in addition to that, you know, uh, with the parents that I actively work with, having to support them, uh, giving them resources, uh, helping them with time management and things like that, because now they're going from being in parents just of young people in general to now they have their kids at home with them and they're still actively working either in the home or outside of the home. So a couple of, you know, my parents, we had to go through that, you know, what does that look like? You know, do we need to consider putting together a concrete schedule during the day so it can help the young person stay on course with their, um, their studies and you also have time to do whatever obligations you have to your job. Uh, so basic things like that, just helping um, the parents with structure, helping them find ways to be able to decompress and carve out time for self-care, um, given that we're now at home with our spouse, our family, our children, those of us who have children, um, working with, um, the clients ought to be more intentional in incorporating the skills that they've been working on to help them manage uh, distress, unplug, and things like that. And so we've been talking about, uh, we've been focusing really on immediate um, things to implement where most of the, some, some of the sessions we have, we're talking about more complex things that are going on. Uh, working towards long-term goals. Now we kind of had to transition that and focus into like, okay, what is the most pressing thing? You know, might be stressed about just everything that's going on and, and identifying concrete things to take away each session to help them better, you know, manage and function during this time. I've also have had a lot of people, um, I've amped up my social media presence, I guess, <laughs> since uh, the epidemic started in March. And so a lot of people have reached out to me just about like tips um, and like resources. And so being on social media, I, I might not physically have like, you know, concrete resources I can give you, but being able to connect them to national organizations, local organizations, 
uh, they're actively doing things. So to be able to share that in real time has been really great because sometimes people just need to know what the resources are. Um, so being able to do those things, um, families and friends, you know, have reached out wanting to know like, Hey, do you re me recommending colleagues to them because they're actively like, Ooh, you know, I need to talk to somebody. This is becoming a lot. And so I've had, I've had an increase of that communication as well, kind of helping and supporting friends and family as they're like, they've been thinking about therapy, but now they're like, I have to. Uh, because it's too many compounding factors that's happening on top of what they were already dealing with just, you know, being Black in America. And so uh, I've had a lot of that to want, making references and referrals to um, either local colleagues or colleagues in other states because people are just like, you know, they're ready, they're needing to be supported. Um, and the fact that, you know, we're able to still be able to provide services uh, remotely, that's been great too. Not having to disrupt the work that we're doing with our clients. So, you know, grateful for technology and <laughs> to still be able to, you know, to be able to work because ten years ago this would this would not have been a thing. Um, mm -hmm. And so, really grateful for yeah. Um, yeah. the progress we've made technologically to be able to support our our clients. Yeah, and I definitely agree with that too, especially with the technology piece because more now than ever, I mean, obviously with everything that's been open reclose reopen you know all this stuff going on in each of the states as far as this pandemic go obviously we can't have but so much physical interaction when it comes to any profession uh especially when it involves being around people in a confined space so yeah it's definitely much appreciated that technology has provided this you know other avenue or platform if you will for us to still be able to do our jobs effectively and even for in your cases, you know, being in the mental health field, you're still able to see clients and speak to them about those different issues that they're having. And so, Dr. Hofstadt, would you obviously share too what you what you have been uh, obviously um, if you've been in contact with anyone who's looking for any just counseling advice as it pertains to this, even from a multiculturalistic standpoint, but more so obviously you know in the Black community as well. Yeah. Um... You know, so very similar to what Dr. Williams said, you know, a lot of uh, people I've talked to just to transition and even encouraging the transition with previous clients that I had to go telemental health. So I'll start with that, the COVID. And then, you know, because obviously we're in a double pandemic. And so also being aware of how that has impacted, you know, my clients who are Black um, with adjusting or who weren't Black and, and uh, talking to them and processing the protests as well. But, you know, starting with the the COVID, just processing what that's like to transition your life, you know, and, and having to, you know, aside of giving tangible um, examples of what that may look like, also just processing for them, like, how has this disrupted them, the things they thought they were going to do, they weren't, and, and knowing that that's okay. I think a lot of us who are very, um, you know, um, want to achieve and success um, and have things to accomplish, there's something about the true act. I don't think we're aware of how much we physically hold that energy when we're moving about our day, we're going to multiple meetings, we're talking, we're engaging within our multiple roles that we have, and when we're confined to one place, how that impacts us, especially as it relates to trauma. And so to me, I'm always focused on how the body keeps the score. If anyone's familiar with Dr. You know, uh, Vanderkoek, we talk a lot about the body will keep trauma um, stored. It's a, like a memory. And so when we're not able to physically get out of the house, our, our first reaction is to, to flee, to run. And so I'm always 
quick with trying to assess that level of anxiety that my clients may have, their inability, the overwhelming feeling they, they feel of being home, especially those who are alone, right? And how that plays on them and how that may bring up some of those triggers that they have had from their past, the inability to control the, their environment related to like COVID, you know, um, and, and so those are the, the things that I, I do focus on as it relates to clients who have come to me or, or that I'm currently working with related to, you know, Black Lives Matter and the consistent, you know, re-traumatization we have verbally, I mean, we have visually seen um, of Black men dying on the streets and, and women hearing about it, um, especially as it relates to Breonna Taylor not, you know, being in her video, but knowing of it occurring. You know, a lot of what I've been able to do has been to refer out because I'm just, I'm, I'm at my, um, you know, I'm extended. I, I have no, uh, no clients availabilities, no spaces, no slots, um, physically, emotionally, but also just physical time, um, being able to do that, but able to find resources for those who have sought me out for those who I, I know are competent, you know, so things like, um, um, therapy for Black girls, having a list of those who are competent clinicians, being able to uh, provide um, those resources. But for the ones I am working with, you know, we've had to stop. We have to stop our current processing of information and focus on this, unfortunately, because it was hitting them at such a level, as well as myself, and just to, to sit and bear witness to to processing the experience. So I think sometimes, you know, with these, these clients, it's giving them permission to just talk about it. What are they experiencing? What are they, their, uh, what's occurring? And not that I'm, you know, as you can tell, I'm more so like focused on the, the processing, the reflecting, the memories, um, thinking about the past. That's kind of a lot, a lot of the therapy that I'm doing outside of giving tangible information, but sometimes just being with them. And so I'm finding more often not um, the clients that I am, even my young ones, I mean, I, I work with teenagers as well, and they are wanting to talk about what's going on. They're wanting to understand more and just giving them resources, Instagram pages, they can go to Twitter accounts, you know, where they can get more information, like Dr. Williams was saying, that has been the primary thing that I've been doing. And also me seeking it out, wanting to be even more competent, even from my you know, uh, I know we're talking about black community, but from my his, my Latin, the Latinx community, my, you know, even white friends have reached out and giving them resources and not being responsible for telling them, providing them information. And, and it feels like people are really getting that in this moment. Um, so that that's, you know, kind of what, I, what I'm conceptualizing now, some of the work I've been doing and, and providing uh, and how I've been providing resources or just helping individuals right now, mental health perspective. Yeah, and I want to I want to stay right there for a minute to talk about just the exhaustion of what's been going on, right? So obviously everyone has been in, impacted and affected by what's been going on, some type of way, some capacity. And so, you know, for me personally, it's been it's been mentally, emotionally, and just environmentally just exhaustion from everything that's been going on. Obviously, being a black man or being a black person, for that matter, having to deal with a virus that's called coronavirus on top of a virus that's been existing longer than anything that's been instilled in our bodies, but it's more so done to our bodies. And that's racism. So those type of things that we have to deal with on an everyday basis, it, it really is exhausting waking up being a black person and just say, okay, what what is next today? What what new uh, phenomenon, if you will, to these white Americans is going to you know, basically take over us and, and just exhaust us again? 
like we we don't have enough to deal with already. And so it, it is a very daunting time to live in, especially given the fact that most of these issues are reoccurring issues of the past. So that within itself can be very heavy, weigh, heavily weighed on our mental capacity and just our overall psyche in trying to deal with these things. And so if you're a person that's out of a job and on top of dealing with this uh with this pan this this epidemic that's called racism it's like so much to deal with all at once and so and i, and I do to your point about the people who are obviously dealing with this alone i, I definitely sympathize with those because i can only imagine not having a, a support system or a consistent supporting cast or system around you to better help assist you with dealing with these everyday things and so it is definitely important that we obviously, in, in these troubling times, reach out to someone to talk to talk to them about this because the question "How are you doing?" can go a long way, and it's not just some words. But in all honesty, how you're doing, following up with, you know, okay, I'm not okay, and it's okay mm -hmm. to express that you're not okay because none of us is okay with anything that's going on right now with the handling of this pandemic, with the handling of police brutality and injustice that's been going on in this world, in this country preferably, it's been a lot to deal with. And so none of us can truly say, hey, you know what, I'm okay. I may be better than I was yesterday, but I'm still dealing with something internally when it comes to all of these issues that we're dealing with on top of the very exclusive and internal issues that we deal with on an everyday basis, just in our everyday life, like, you know, family issues that we're dealing with, you know, uh, marital issues or uh, just parental issues for that matter. It's so many different layers and so many different types of issues that we as Black people preferably are dealing with that it, it does just become an exhaustion to even look forward to tomorrow. It's like, yeah. okay, I made it through the day. I'm just, I'm happy I did that much. And so tomorrow, we'll, we'll see what tomorrow brings. It's almost like we're lacking the hope for a better tomorrow. And that's what this this entire ordeal has done to our psyche. And so in, in transitioning to this next question I have for the both of you, I wanna know, has it been an influx, preferably from the black community uh, of people coming in seeking counseling or, or should it be an influx in the past couple of months with this pandemic and the shutdown and everything that's been going on, has it been an influx of people coming in to you know, and seek that counseling advice or just seek counseling in general when it comes to just dealing with everyday normal life situations. And so, Dr. Hofstad, I'll start with you on this question. Has there been an influx that you can speak to that uh, in, in the Black community, preferably, that has occurred with, you know, Black people more now than ever seeking, you know, that, that counseling and that assistance or that service, if you will? Yeah, yeah, my my calls have gone up significantly um, to the point where I had to put on even my psychology today that I'm just not accepting clients anymore. Um, and aside from just me personally, you know, getting contacted, um, I've also seen on Facebook, people are asking for resources. My my friends, friends that I'm aware of, they tag me in it. They know that, you know, I'm, I'm a therapist and um, I've just seen an influx of, of Black people and it just gives me so much joy, or, or admitting, people are admitting that I'm seeking, I have a therapist, you know, I really encourage you all, I've talked to my therapist today, you know, it's, it's becoming a common um, um, conversation, um, especially in such a public place like social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you know, and so I am just like, as a therapist, elated to see, you know, us having these conversations when I know you know, I think about my family and my, my, my father who, 
you know, things need to stay in the house. You know, you don't talk about your family issues. And so our generation and the younger generation, they are seeking it. They're asking for assistance. Um, yeah. So I, I have seen definitely in the past, I would say since COVID, to be honest, and, and, and it has increased since, um, you know, everything that the Black Lives Matter movement coming re, you know, um, integrated in, in our culture and really becoming the forefront. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, Dr. Williams, yeah, I definitely want to know from you as well. What, what, how can you speak to, or can you speak to the influx that has possibly happened over time with the number of people, preferably in the Black community, reaching out to you specifically as it pertains to just, okay, hey, do you have, a, do you have time to speak with me about these issues, or do you have a respected counselor or your, in your, or colleague that you know that I can obviously be directed to? Yeah, so I definitely echo what Dr. Hostad just said as far as um, things are coming at different waves. And so I um, I think I just took on like my last client <laughs> that I can check on on my caseload. So I will be referring out as well. Um, and so there definitely has been more, uh, more intentionality, more people reaching out. Uh, some people, um, so as far as like the actively working with clients, I have also had more people reaching out within a short period of time. Mm -hmm. So if I look back on my usual activity over the course of three months, I usually would have this um, volume of calls coming in. Uh, we do have peak season, but this is definitely outside of what, typ what I'm typically used to. So I have seen uh, as far as people seeking out for uh, me specifically for mental health services. Um, and like I said, echoing what Dr. Hofstad said, I'm seeing to more people being open to talk about what's going on, just beyond expressing um, thoughts, but people mm -hmm. being open to talking about how, how all of these things are is making them feel. And I think part of it is because us, the Black mental health professionals, are being more intentional on what we're communicating. And so those of us who actively have social media accounts, professional social media accounts, we are putting out content mm -hmm. um, that's helping at times give verbiage to what people are experiencing. And so I have posted, you know, several times, like, you know, it's okay to not be okay. Mm -hmm. And within our community, we don't hear that a lot. You know, we're supposed to be strong. We're supposed to endure. We're supposed to, you know, suck it up and keep going. And so when you see somebody who's a professional putting out information constantly, be like, and you're getting it from what's for people like hey it's okay to feel overwhelmed it is okay to feel uneasy it is okay to feel anxious it is okay to be mad it's okay to like it's okay to feel your feelings right now and mm -hmm. you're getting a lot of that from people who look like you i think that's mm -hmm. helping people realize like all these things that i'm feeling it is okay for me to feel them and it is okay for me to sit and process them i don't have to suppress them um because for a long time especially no, I would even say uh, just within the black community, we're not always encouraged to feel our feelings. You know, it's like, hey, you, you but did, did you die? You know, mm -hmm. in some instances, some of us ha are dying, but a lot of it is we got to suck it up and keep going. And part of it is because of the, the, the historical context, the, um, the realities that we have been subjected to where we haven't had the privilege to be able to sit and process and talk, right? Because we're always fighting, we're always looking for solutions, be like, okay, well, how, you know, 
talking about it is cute and everything, but how is it going to make me, you know, move me to the next step? Um, but now we're coming at this professional. It's like, you know, we, we got to process these feelings because you, you can only suppress emotions for so long before they bubble, bubble up and they come out in a very unhealthy ways. Um, and so that has forced me to be intentional in getting connected to like, as Dr. Hofstad, and I love how she said it, like, uh, reputable and good resources. Is, that's very important because, you yes. know, not all resources are created equally. Yes. So I've been intentional in seeking out my, my colleagues who are doing different things for putting out great content and I'm sharing and I'm disseminating it. Yes. Uh, because a- another component that we have to keep in mind is that we as Black pro- professionals within the mental health field, we are experiencing the same thing that every, everybody else is experiencing. And so this is a very unique time because most of the time as a professional, you're not necessarily helping your client it, you know, process That's the right. same things that you're going through, right? Yes. So it's usually like you got a situation happening, I'm here to support, but you're going through COVID, I'm going through COVID. You're stressed out, I'm stressed out. You're overwhelmed, I'm overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think what Dr. Hofstad said, which is very integral, and I encourage my fellow, you know, black professionals, use your resources. Don't feel the need to kind of, you know, have to answer everything. You can refer out, you can link people to great resources and they can do some of that work themselves. And um, because again, it's great. It's exciting to see, but I also feel like we can end up doing some harm to ourselves as being black professionals that we can end up burning out because we're, we get so excited. Like, oh, people are finally understanding that this is important. And yeah. then you're working, working, working. You're already overwhelmed because of COVID and all this racial trauma. And then on top of now processing other people's emotions about those things. Um, yeah. And so all in that to say yes and yes. <laughs> <laughs> and if I could add Marlon too, I, I yeah. like what you said, Dr. Williams, about the idea of like one being aware of a compassion um, compassion uh, battle, compassion fatigue. I think I might have said that. Oh, compassion. compassion fatigue. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and and being aware of what how that happens for us as the mental health providers who are sitting with someone who's dealing with the same exact thing mm-hmm. you are experiencing, and then we just take it on, and it really has a significant impact. We know burnout happens, so we have to protect ourselves. Um, and that's for any professional who are working with other people, even just colleagues, having those conversations, being mindful of how much you can you know take on. But I loved how. Um, Dr. Williams, you said about, um, you know, providing resources to give our people language. And now it has been the most, I think, inspiring thing that I have. I mm-hmm. have seen the work that we do as researchers, in addition to us being therapists, of giving our people language. You know, I've been talking about a lot of racial gaslighting, you know, that I've been seeing on social media. And so they can call it and name it out when they're experiencing that type of racism via trollers on Facebook. And I think that microaggressions. Microaggressions, yes. Yeah. Yes. That advocacy, that self-advocacy for themselves. And, and, and it's so empowering. And so for me, that has been a form of that. That, that work that we have seen too by not only them talking about mental health but also them using those terminology now and and, and finding out things of, of giving language even idea of internalized racism how that impacts us and what we say about each other and um mm-hmm. how once we can become aware we can start batting against it and um you know yeah so i, I just i thought that i wanted to add that too based on what you said that was really really uh important and how we are seeing mental health being impacted in our communities socially and things of that sort as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead, Dr. Williams. 
I was saying it's making it tangible, right? So by you seeing people who look like you, who are talking about these things, who are professionals, it helps. Uh, the reality is just like everything else in this country <laughs> and across the world, you know, mental health has racial, you know, racism embedded in it. So the fact that you, we are part of a field that was founded and created by white males. And mm -hmm. so there are historical contexts there that we're very mindful of. And so and for a very long time, even now, even though there's more black and uh, other minorities within the, um, the mental health field, we're still drastically underrepresented. And right. so, again, I think we need to, you know, acknowledging some of the positive things that's come out with us dealing with COVID essentially having, being forced to adapt, right? Using uh, technology and social media to continue to do our work is forcing us as professionals to kind of, you know, get our faces out there now, you know, like, uh, therapy for black girls like I think everybody now knows what that is you know and mm -hmm. that's an awesome you know directory you can pull it up and you can see yeah. all the black professionals within your area and so now kind of taking away one of the um the things that contributed to the stigma with people seeking help is you know there aren't people who look like me who are mm -hmm. doing this I'm like no we we're out here we're here uh, we're here <laughs> and we got your back this exactly. still we're still um underrepresented but there are quite a few of us out here doing great work and so i think that's part of what's happening so when you're seeing somebody like myself and my other colleagues and we're doing these webinars people going live on social media and having you know time to check in i've seen so many different creative things that my colleagues are doing to mm -hmm. try to empower the community which is like awesome and all of this is being done you know for free you know you're not charging someone to come on your social media page yes but you're creating content that is being very helpful to to your community and so the willingness for our colleagues to get creative and be flexible and a lot of us you know are within the millennial you know generation so we're embracing the technology and we're incorporating a lot of it into our work and you you know taking advantage of social media and you know getting it out there and again right. the more you start seeing black faces with you know so, along with mental health professional that's going to be encouraging you know then people know there are people who look like me out here doing right. this work and they're saying that it's okay to not only seek the services but we also need y'all some of y'all to go ahead and get this degree so we can increase the numbers <laughs> Yeah, because yeah, because even despite it being a representation in the mental health field, it's still very it's in short supply, right? So oh, limited, it's, on, it's only but so many of our black faces representing this particular field that yes. you know it, it, the rarity of finding a black counselor in your city or state it, it's still mm -hmm. rare. And so having that in mind, dealing with those types of issues where most black people who do want to seek counseling, it's like listen, I only want to. Uh, find a counselor who looks like me, who can speak to or even relate to the same issues I'm dealing with, because it's already a struggle enough just being black on an everyday basis. So I want to talk to someone who doesn't look like me, who really understands the plight of my concern or right. just the overall issues that I deal with on an everyday basis. So yeah, yeah. and to that point, Dr. Hofstad, you mentioned something about how important social media and technology is, because this is the way of the world now. So obviously everything being put and plastered on social media right there for you live in real time or you know a few seconds or whatever later but it's important to know that 
this is a tool, a very useful and marketable tool to use to get all right. types of important information out there, especially when it's dealing with mental health uh, uh, and just overall anxiety in general, dealing with all mm -hmm. this going on. And so my next question to you all is as it pertains to that those so, some of those very same issues that we're dealing with as far as racism. So Dr. Halstead, you can speak to this first. Um, would you say that even obviously with it being hard enough to being a black person specifically in this world, as it pertains to dealing with white privilege, uh, both of you all are uh, assistant professors at West Georgia. And so you can speak to just the overall environment in your classes as it pertains to dealing with white privilege in the classroom. How are you all able to just obviously enlighten and educate your mm -hmm. your white students as well as any other cultural background students that aren't black how do you get them to understand that there is a such thing as white privilege that's been going on you know since the beginning of time especially in this country dr hopsigat you can you have the floor first yeah um wow you know i think that i want to note that this semester has been I can't think of another time where I found students so willing to learn. And I, I mean, my white students especially. Um, and so I think that this may be slightly different than what I've experienced in the past. And so I, I will start there first with the past of, you know, there was a lot of um, pointing to literature and also letting students know, I'm not just saying this because I'm, I'm Black, because I think that's important. But also I've done the research. I've, I've gone to webinars. I've grounded myself in this knowledge um, and to, to have that backing to also say, this is what's happening. And if you don't like it, you know, or if you're comfortable with it, sit in that because that's what it's like being a black person every single day. Have to do with the discomfort and knowing that the way that you view the world is not congruent with how you see yourself and how you move through it. Um, but as a transition to you know now you know in my classes i think because people are actually having to sit and, and see what's happening and they can't refuse what happened or deny what happened to ahmaud arbery you know and george floyd they are seeing the videos you know and, and it, it saddens me to know that you have to visually see it to, to understand and realize the plight of racism mm -hmm. and how it has plagued our country and you know black people um but them seeing that, I think it makes them um, acknowledge like there's something mm -hmm. happening here. And also, I think we're privileged in the counseling field that the students that we are teaching that I am working with, um, or even the colleagues I'm working with, there's a responsibility. You knew what you came into. You know, mm -hmm. you know what we do. And so regardless of if you like to address it or <laughs> talk about it, you, you kind of knew what you, you came in for. And if not, we're going to deconstruct, dismantle, and discuss these things. And so there's a lot of challenging that's done, um, regardless of who you are uh, as a student. And, and if I feel discomfort, we sit and process that. What is that like for you? You know, I, I suggest them reading uh, Robin D'Angelo's uh, White Fragility book mm -hmm. um, to look up anything by Tim Wise, by, you know, Jane Elliott, because I can't speak to what it's like being white. I, I cannot, and I and I don't think it's, it's it would be appropriate to to explain what that must feel like because I can't address it. I know what it looks like. I can call it out. <laughs> I can address you know the discomfort, the white tears that I may see, and where it the fragility of it. You know, however, I can't talk to the intimacy of the the feeling that it feels. I know what it feels like to be black, and the struggle within, and to address those issues and to bring factual historical context that they have never had. Um, you know, insight to and, and awareness to and have them. And, and to me, it was even more, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
it feels better. I can't think of the word I want to use, but you know, really gratifies gratifying for me is to be able to say, go to Google and search these things, look up mm -hmm. uh, professional hair versus non-professional hair, you know, and, and what do you see? So giving them context in that way, it starts bringing that awareness that I'm seeing that happens. Um, and so another thing is just calling it out. I, I had the privilege of working with Dr. Williams specifically. And so, you know, I think that there's something powerful. You have people who get it. And so you feel comfortable with having the ability to have that power and calling out things that you may be seeing. Um, in the classroom or processing something um, and finding out resources. And so for me, that has been one way in which I've been benefit of being able to address white privilege with my students, as well as if I see it in, in the academia or with, with clients, really um, being able to give resources and address, uh, address it right on, being direct with it, which I don't think a lot of my, if I'm honest, my ancestors had the privilege of doing. So I take exactly. that responsibility not lightly. Yeah. And, I, and I'm glad that Dr. Hofstad echoed the fact that we are, as counselor educators, we are in a unique space because literally the students that we're working with are coming mm -hmm. to us in our, in our program because they want to become professional counselors. And so there's already an expectation that's placed on them when they're applying. And so we have our statements. I know specifically our program, and this is an initiative that I led back in 2017. We have a non-discrimination statement that uh, is linked to the American Counseling Association's non-discrimination statement that we have applicants, not admins, but potential students sign during the interview process so they understand that these are the standards through which they're going to be held right. once they're in our program. And so yeah. that expectation is placed out there, like from the from the time they're interviewing, when they know that this is going to be a growth process, they're going to be challenged through the course of their time with us. And so, because there's that expectation, we are in a place that we can call things out. And so, if we notice that a student is, you know, might have said something that's of concern, we can call them out because what is our responsibility to we need to help that student gain insight into some of their um, their unconscious biases that they have and, and, and things like that. And so, and funny enough, myself and Dr. Hofstad kind of overlap in a lot of things. And so we we both have had the privilege of teaching our multicultural class. Uh, so I've taught it the last two years and now she's taking it over. As you know, I'm not teaching this summer. Yeah. Uh, grant, two point two million grant, two point two million dollar grant, mind you. Well, you know oh, how you, that goes. You know goes. how many times I hear about that. So I, I'm very proud of her. Uh, I wish we can get some of that money too, but you know, it's all right. Yeah. So um, being in that class, obviously, you, we have an opportunity. We are the intentionality, right? So we have a class that's focused specifically on multiculturalism and diversity and when I took over that class, I decided to teach it from a privileged model because when you go through that model, you really, because we all have different privileges. And mm -hmm. so if you can allow people to conceptualize the privileges that they have, then in that process, they start realizing that not everybody has the same privileges that I have, you know, mm -hmm. something. Um, and so during the process, of helping the white students uh, and the non-black students understand the plight of black uh, Americans and black people just in general. 
we also as professionals are responsible for helping them in that process. And so mm -hmm. a lot of my students, um, and I've have had the privilege of working with great students. We have really great students at West Georgia. <laughs> um, and so part of what I have to help my, especially my white students work through is once they gain that insight and they start being um, very culturally competent individuals and they are working intentionally to be better and to address um, racism and biases and stereotypes and things like that, sometimes they're not sometimes but the people they're having to go up against are family yeah. and friends i have had students who have who had to make the decision over the course of their time whether it's why they're working on their master's degree that they have to sever relationships within their families because they're going in and they're having conversations like hey god you can't y'all can't be saying things like that you know you can't be having this type of thoughts you can't behave this way this is not right and they're coming with the research and the, all of this, like, y'all need to read this. Y'all need to look at this videos. This is not okay. And mm -hmm. some families and friends are like, okay, let's sit down. Let's have a conversation. Others are stuck in their ways and they do not want to change. And so we have, we have our white students who are sometimes having to go through a grieving process mm -hmm. uh, as they're getting their degree because they are making the decision to sever relationships because they're realizing these people are it, I, I can't be around you if you behave this way or if you believe this way and so that is a thing that i have had had to support my white students through that my black students are not necessarily having to endure not saying that they don't but most of my white students are the ones who have to deal with that reality and so yeah. that's the thing that as a student i never thought of mm -hmm. right because i always looked like well, well you can why you got that white privilege you're good but until i became an educator and taught this class specifically i realized the journey that some of my white students have to go through during this process that i and sometimes other minority students might not necessarily have to go through and so mm -hmm. i had to be intentional in making sure that i'm supporting them in that process and helping them you know make sense of that experience for themselves so that's yeah. that's been a unique part of this journey that i never thought about prior to teaching this class yeah and so it's a it's a deprogramming and a reprogramming process if you think about it because it's unfortunate that racism is taught and, and that seed of racism is planted in their minds as children growing up. And it, it just, it, it harvests a whole garden of just racially biased views and beliefs as they get older. And so those type of issues that obviously comes from their parents, their parents' parents, and just generations on down, you having to just, just deprogram and reprogram yourself of your ways of thinking and your beliefs as far as thinking that, oh, my white privilege and me being white is more superior to anyone else's you know ethnicity and that's been something that's so disheartening to where people who are you know, coming of you know coming to the reality that in my conscientious mind i can't feel like this especially in a, in a particular you know a sense of a professional area like the mental health field where you're taught to not have those racial biases and, and prejudices or even that racist view of ways of thinking when it comes to helping those who are in need it, as far as their mental health is concerned. And so it, it's, a, it's a harsh reality to have to 
sit within that and understand that. And it is the thing too, white privilege is not necessarily to highlight or make people feel shameful for being white, but it's the understanding that due to the systemic institutional racism that has plagued this country for far too long, that, that, that's been the fueling, that's been the fuel that's fueled your fire as far as giving you and granting you those white privileges that you have that others don't. Yes. And so as a black person, you have to understand it from our views. And I've seen a number of experiments have happened where, you know, I forget the, the, the man's name, where he actually had uh, a, a number of people in a park ready to, to, to run this race, run his marathon. And he would list a different set of things that would obviously let certain people take a few steps further up while the others who didn't have those same privileges or over purview to have in their lives growing up had to stay back and stay in the same place they were in. So basically just fundamentally understanding that throughout this, this race called life, someone that's in that same race with you aren't going to have the same privileges you have. And you have to understand that either you, you yourself didn't do anything to be in this privileged situation, but the the systemic and institutional barriers that have been obviously against us as black people or minorities in general have always been the case when it comes to us having to overcome that adversity that you don't have to overcome right so privilege is not about what you've been through but it's more so about what you don't have to worry about going through. and and even to that point you know obviously yeah i, I commend you all for the efforts that you are uh putting forth helping your your white students understand that hey because of your white privilege this is you know it's brought diversity that other minorities had to get to to get to where you are so it's going to be a time where where you are is where some the other person yeah and so you already halfway there while they're still the, the race hasn't even begun because they haven't and do other things just to get ready to be in the race while you're already racing. Exactly. So, yeah. so I think what Dr. Hoff says that is that unearned um, privilege comes with unearned access, right? So it's, and we don't, you know, who we're born to, <laughs> it's not our choice. So if you happen to be born to white parents, there's going to be things that automatically are going to come easier. And it's not saying that being a white person in this country, you know, it's easy sailing that you don't, mm -hmm. you know, experience any adversities because if you are poor, if you come from broken homes, you can be, uh, you can experience trauma, things like that, that would impact and that would hinder your ability to maybe live a fulfilled life. But there's going to be certain things by default that you never have to worry about and so one thing that i've always done in that class is to really make it a personal experience and really allow my students to almost have like a, a, a tangible um thing so i will always incorporate myself in that process i'm like you all know me you all see me and my like, oh dr williams you know she's our professor and you know she's all cool and everything i'm like yeah i get it uh, so you know me it's true uh, you've developed a relationship with me right and so, mm -hmm. but let me tell you some of my experiences as a black woman. Um, so I've told them, you know, as, especially when I was applying for work in academia, when I graduated um, with my doctoral degree, things like, how do I wear my hair? You know, 
being not knowing, you know, looking at the current faculty, be like, oh, there's a lot of older people, you know, a lot of older males, uh, mm-hmm. white males in this department, this college. Um, there's a chance they might have particular views on what's, you know, deemed to be professional, unprofessional. So, like, letting them understand, like, that is something that I had to think about. In addition to preparing for the interview, that just the regular anxieties of being a recent, you know, recent defendant in my dissertation, and you're already experiencing, you know, imposter syndrome, like, can I really do this? Are they going to see the potential in me? But that added piece of, you know, what can I wear? How can, you know, do I need to wear my hair? Do I need to put it back into a slick ponytail and do that if I come out with, you know, my natural hair? Is that going to be seen as being um, maybe too super, you know, too radical, you know, coming yeah. in here making a ruckus or whatever? Um, you know, our classes are in the evening. I told them there's been a few times when I've seen the blue lights come up behind me, not because I'm being pulled over, maybe they're, you know, getting, getting ready to pass me. And I t- my heart sinks to the bottom of my stomach uh, because I'm like, we're in Georgia, <laughs> you know? And I'm driving at night by myself. And I'm like, these are things that I, your professor sitting here teaching in this class, these are things that I have personally experienced where you are driving, you know, you see a cop, you, you, you're going to be mindful about it and move to the side and let them go, but your heart might not drop. Some of the people in this class who look like me experience those things. When you're getting ready for that interview, you don't think about, you know, your hair to that capacity. That your hair could be used to uh, limit your access to employment. So mm-hmm. letting them know, like, it, it's not the, always the big things. Because we know the big things, right? If somebody calls, you know, throws a racial slur at you or, you know, attacks you physically, we can call those things out. But it's those microaggressions that tend to come along with the the lack of privilege that we have, right? So going through the racial privilege and the gender privilege, class privilege, because Mm -hmm. then you could be white, but you came from a low SES. So then when we talk about class privilege, you you can understand, you're like, oh, I know what it's like not Mm -hmm. to have. And then they start making us, oh, So similar to that socioeconomic lack of privilege, my whiteness affords me something that his blackness might not afford them. So Mm -hmm. to really help them deconstruct and not focus solely on the racial piece, because the racial part sometimes makes it tricky. But when you bring in this other privileged classes and categories, it opens up a word to them. They're like, oh, wait a minute that's what that means. And like, yeah. And so a lot of times you have good people who just haven't had the opportunity to really process what it means to have this unearned rights. Mm -hmm. Um, Just like when you talk about the gender, you know, uh, differences, right? So if you're talking, if you're talking to a male, even within our community, you could be talking to a black male and be like, well, let me tell you what it's like being a black woman, you know, and Mm -hmm. some of the things that we have to deal. And until you have that conversation you realize you know your gender does give you a privilege if you're a male versus a female and so when I first started teaching that class it when I when I started with race people were on pins and needles but we started when I presented it from a privilege model all of a sudden because we all have things that we can check as privileges Mm -hmm. then you can start seeing and 
understanding how you have some privileges, some categories that you are able, some boxes that you're able to check and you have some boxes that you're not able to check. But then the reality is some of us have more boxes <laughs> that we're able to check in the sense of privilege and others and then stacking them up. So if you have almost all your boxes checked, life is going to be pretty easy street for you in this country yeah. versus somebody yeah. who maybe are, is able to check one box or two boxes Absolutely. or no boxes, yeah. you know, and there's nothing that they did. It's just who they happen to be born as and to that didn't allow them to be able to check those boxes. And so mm -hmm. again, it, but in all of that, it's still a difficult thing to deal with. I know with everything going on with all this racial related conversation. I know, again, myself and Dr. Hasbeck talk almost every day. Um, and part of it for me, and I know maybe she might touch on it for herself, it's become overwhelming. <laughs> also having to constantly lead this conversation yeah. and so you talk about that mental health piece it's like yes within our profession we expect our standards for us are relatively high but even in that setup being a black person or person of color within our field we're still having to lead right and pull people into having these conversations and we're because again this is part of our re lived realities and so we're mm -hmm. having to constantly not only deal with our students and what we're trying to help grow but we got to reel in our colleagues and you know we and, talk about challenge challenge them and challenge their lack of action um yeah. and so why still doing you know the COVID? why still doing with just being black in america now you've got to also be in it and champion for your people in this white spaces because if we don't these things are going to be they're going to either be overlooked oh no they're going to be overlooked or mm -hmm. minimized you know and so it's mm -hmm. and it ties back into that whole the mental health piece is like it becomes overwhelming and exhausting so like sometimes like the way we deal is you know to them and be like hey that meeting did you did you hear what I heard? It, how do you feel about what just happened, about a discussion we just had to just have a soundboard? Somebody who looks like you, who, who's in the same profession to be like, oh, okay. The, I felt this way after this mm -hmm. conversation. How did you feel to kind of have somebody to be able to go to and process? And then when needed, just you know, calling out my therapist and be like, hey, we got to chat because <laughs> <laughs> things are becoming, you know, they're becoming overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you know, even, again, talking about that too, as far as being black in America or being black in general, it's it's exhausting enough. We we have to even on our on our everyday life, as far as our jobs go, we have to wake up, be professional, uh, obviously get those deliverables done, and, and and still be able to maintain a level of professionalism that doesn't necessarily rub anyone else in that within our team at work, uh, make them uncomfortable or anything like that, but. Living in the times we live in right now, I'm all about making the comfortable people feel very uncomfortable because you've been too comfortable entirely too damn long, <laughs> and we haven't. So now you're going to actually see in real time what it's like to to live our lives in terms of looking at the the very issues that we're dealing with. And so even to your point, Dr. Williams, about how even on, in a professional sense, we having to deal with these same issues too, right? So, being in those in those rooms or being on those virtual calls, listening in to people who having you know certain certain types of views and their beliefs 
and then even dropping certain subliminal messages or making yeah. little uh, little comments here and there. They're just like, well, wait, what did you just say? Like, what does that mean? Like, I'm not necessarily understanding what the plight of where you're going with that. And so, mm-hmm. and with not being late with the idea of not wanting to be labeled the angry black guy or the angry black woman, because oftentimes those those negative connotative you know, uh, terms are obviously associated with us whenever we express our concerns as it pertains to the professional sense. We have to, oh, we have to make sure you, you don't get too loud and irate, but yet some of us have been on calls where some of our white counterparts are sitting here, you know, using the explicitives and, and saying other things that we couldn't necessarily get away with saying. And so those type of things there oftentimes are reminders to us that yeah, we're not privileged to have these same different things, these same things that you are obviously able to express. We can't express them the same way because we'll be looked at as, okay, we want to anger this guy because he's a tall black guy or this is a black woman who she's expressing her concerns. It's not going to be taken the same way. And that's the unfortunate part too. And even to your point about how we as black people have to deal with now, we're, we're living in a time where now just last year, the Crown Act was passed as far as, being able to not be discriminated against because of your hair, the texture of your hair, the way you wear your hair. Yeah. And I'm of the mindset, why the hell do we need a goddamn law or a, a, a bill that's passed to tell us how the hell, how the hell we supposed to wear our damn hair? You, you're not black. You can't tell us what the hair to do with our damn hair. This is how it naturally hair. grows. How it naturally grows, by the this way. Is, exactly. This is our hair. You mad because you don't look like this? Like, that's your damn problem, not ours. We shouldn't see- we shouldn't need a damn bill or a law to tell us, hey, you know, in a professional sense, you know, we, we might want you to cut your hair or cut your braids or cut your cornrows or your dreads. What the hell? You you don't have this hair. You don't have this melanated skin color and that, that we're proud to be a part of. So you shouldn't tell us exactly what to do with our hair. As long as we're not coming in here looking like Takashi 69 with all these rainbow color in our hair in the sense of not being professional, then, then that's a different story. But the fact that we're wearing our hair the way we like it, styling it the way we like it, damn it, you shouldn't even have a damn problem with it. So, yeah, it's just some of those things there that obviously bothered me to the core that we have to deal with. We need to put laws in place to tell you that we, can, we can't dress a certain way or wear our certain hair color or texture or style. That, I mean, I find it to be a tall glass of dirty bullshit with some damn ice in it. And, we are done as black people. We are done with drinking out of that damn straw. And so, I mean, to your point, Dr. Williams, you definitely uh, lamented to the fact that we having to deal with so many different issues professionally that whether great or small, we still have to take those things into, a, into consideration when obviously dealing with our white counterparts at work, being able to express ourselves in a professional sense, but also in a learning manner as well. But yeah, I mean, Dr. Hofstad, you can also speak to uh, any of those things professionally that you've had, had to endure uh, from that standpoint as well. Well, you know, it's interesting. You all both are bringing up such great points. And the one thing I could think about, you you inquiring a little bit too about, like, how have I personally stand up or said something to broach the conversation about white privilege? And the thought that kept coming to mind, especially when Dr. Wayne was talking about just like the experiences we're having with our students, is sometimes they're just unawareness, like, uh, they've been so ingrained, this has just been life for them, that they're not even aware of the times in which they are, the things, the phrases they say, the things they do, mm-hmm. it's grounded in, you, you know, white supremacy. And I'll give an example. I had a student um, before I got to this university um, who we were in a process group just talking. 
And she said, oh, well, I don't like to curse. So instead of cursing, my family and I, we use cotton picking. And I was, I gasped. And in the moment, I realized that she literally believed that that was a way to, to re refrain from using curse words. And um, majority of the students in the group, processing group was, was white. And so I waited to after class to take it to the side and to process that with her because it, it appeared to me, I couldn't tell she was, you know, literally surprised or did, was unaware of what she was saying or if she was intentionally trying to rile up people. And so mm -hmm. it would have been appropriate in the group to call her out in that moment unless it came up again, just appropriately how we process groups. So how I went about it was to come to class, I mean, after class and say, can we talk really quick and, and address it? When I say the m amount of redness that flushed in her face when I brought up that you do know that where that word derives from, it's kind mm -hmm. of picking an N-word. That's what they used, yeah, possibly to, to refrain from cursing, but it's a derogatory terms towards Black people, and it, it, it grounded from slavery. It came from, comes from slavery. And, I mean, the amount of fear and anxiety in her face, and she looked like <laughs> deer in the headlights. She could mm -hmm. not believe. And that the fact that her family and then this is what they use consistently. And it was that moment of like, not okay. And she was even wanting to come to class and apologize and say, can we come the next, can we, the next process group? Could we talk about that? Can I like share that with everyone and address that? I had no idea how embarrassed I am for the, the know that that even came out and how I'm not okay with that. And, you know, I, I encourage her. Yes, I think you definitely should and, and do some more research before you do have a conversation so you can really know what it's grounded in. But it's those moments of like, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. This is not okay. I'm going to call it out and we're going to process that. But just the amount of unawareness they have. And I say they, white students, she was a white student, white students have, and she was Southern white. And so to me, I feel like that's another level of just the phrases and things they use that they, they're no, there's no context truly of where things are grounded. I even think about the idea of the Confederate flag and how we talk about heritage. It was five year war. It was only five years. And you're calling this heritage and not understanding that it was, the world was because of slavery. From yeah. the money that slavery brought and so understanding where that's tied into not some unrealistic you know heritage and trying to have their own state's rights what they believe it to be grounded in and so having a true conversation of like no look at the statements look at the statements that they they had put that reason why they were deciding to leave the union you know it was it was because of slavery and so mm -hmm. anyway so so having those direct specific examples of where calling it out and addressing it but also being being mindful as an educator or even in, in, as a therapist how is it appropriate to not disrupt the group and have it be about them because it's not and it shouldn't be about them but it is important to call it out and bring it to the group um, or into the classroom to process and so that those are the thoughts i keep thinking about of like tangible examples of how in which we as as therapists as, as well as educators are aware and using that knowledge to then educate these individuals where they can be received but also sometimes i, I know it's hard for me to even think like how don't you know this how could you ever not know but they, mm -hmm. i mean I, I genuinely, from the bottom of my gut, and I don't think I don't think a lot of things that people do that is microaggressions are microaggressions, but this was that one time where I can genuinely say that this was unawareness. Uh, she had no idea. Yeah, you know, I, want, I want to speak to that real fast, Dr. Williams. So I, I do know this in reality that, that the word ignorant means two things, right? It means to not know at all, 
And then it also means to know and not give a damn, right? So mm -hmm. obviously a lot of people in life know the truth about things. They just don't care. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, even the root word itself in ignorant is to ignore. It's, you're ignoring the truth. You, you don't care that it's true. You just, you know that it is though. And so for that, that alone, that, that negative phrase alone, just for her to not know the, the severity of how degrading and just derogatory that, that phrase is, that term is, that, that alone is just daunting to me and understanding that there are so many of them, especially in the South, where the, the Confederacy is still celebrated. Like, Listen, I don't understand. even like to see cotton plants. I don't like to see cotton plants. Okay, yeah, I, I don't mean, want to see decorations of it. I don't want. Sorry, I have to just add. No, that. no, 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 not at all. And I completely, I, I share that same sentiment with you in regards to that. But it's like the these these people obviously still celebrate the Confederacy. Like you do know you lost right. the damn war, right? And the war yeah. you lost it was at a cost of almost over a million people have died just for you to sit up here and say that I was fighting to keep to preserve slavery. You were fighting for the very thing that was obviously very degrading and dehumanizing to us yeah. in totality. Yeah. So for you to sit here and say, oh, it's, it's my heritage versus hatred, like that's bullshit. And I'm gonna call it what it is because you're not gonna sit up and tell me there, there is any merit to your quote unquote heritage that would even speak to or speak against what it actually means. I don't care, I don't give a damn about what it means to you specifically. I care about what it actually means what the actual truth is. So you can sit up here and symbolically make it mean something different to you versus trying to dissect the actual truth from it, but you can't, you can't escape that. The reality is what the reality is. And so for you to sit here, and so even the understanding that this young lady obviously didn't understand the severity of what that phrase meant, it's like, you do know, like, uh, have you done any history to understand what cotton picking? Well, that's the thing. They, 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 you think about the education system, and, and Dr. Williams, I'm pretty sure your students have talked about this, the level of, or the lack thereof, of just basic information that you would assume to be taught in, in history class that they would have context to. I sit and I'm dumb, and they are literally saying, no, we were never taught any of this. Now, I, I, understand, I also am from the thought that well, it also is family. It's also the people mm -hmm. you're in the environment. Because I mean, all of the history I got, majority of it's from my family. So I, I'm not blaming the education system, but they just are not talking about it. They are not getting this information. Of course wrong. not. They're not. And so, Why would they? exactly. Like that, that's the privilege piece. Uh, so I always put, put it back to something like, uh, and most of us, well, I came when I was 10, but when you were younger, you play something, I'm pretty sure at some point, cowboys and indians right mm -hmm. at some point and if you were not if you are not part of the indigenous people of this country's heritage yeah you probably saw nothing wrong with that game because one there wasn't anything malicious happening in the moment. Just a whole bunch of kids. Some of you guys are going to be Indians. Some of you are going to be cowboys. We're going to run around. We're going to see who wins. But when you put that into the historical context of this country, now we're having a whole another conversation. Now we got to like understanding the historical uh, connotation and if what he meant, like when historically when cowboys were chasing Indians, like why was that happening? Right. Um, and so 
that's why for me, when we're dealing with students, I have to be, I'm always, that's one of the examples that I, I have to bring in for me as a black person, because sometimes I'm like, how can you not know? But then exactly. until I had, and I was into my adulthood when this happened, I was like, wait, hold on a second. I never put the two and two together. I, it, it was literally in a conversation in a class when somebody brought that up. Um, because I, there was a lot of things that was changing within K through 12. Like you can't say, you know, sitting like, you know, you can't say sitting Indian style. You got to, you know, sit crisscross applesauce. Or be Indian That's, giver. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like some of these intentional things that were being done in K through 12 setting to change some of the th things that have been normalized for years, for years. Because the first time I heard a kid, I was working with one of my clients. And I was like, yeah, let's get down on the ground. And she was like, oh, crisscross applesauce. I was like, what? yeah, crisscross applesauce, like this. I was like, yeah, I get. So then I called one of my friend teachers. And I was like, one of my kids was talking about some crisscross applesauce. Like, what is it? She's like, girl, let me, we can't say Indian style anymore because, again, kind of putting things into that historical perspective. And so a lot of times to help me, right? Because when I'm in class, I can't have, I can't allow my emotions to overwhelm me because mm -hmm. I'm there to educate. Literally my role there is to be an educator. And so there are things that might come up in a discussion where it's like, if I was having, if that was not a student and we were out in the community, my reaction might look different, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Because I'm like, wait, mm -hmm. hold on. What the, <laughs> you just said yeah. right. versus a student who is there to learn and they might say something and be like, okay, similar to what Dr. Hofstad just said, you know, we just said cotton picking instead. Okay, so let me edu let me help you understand why this within the historical context, because for you and your family, the way you use, you're kind of like, oh, this is just what things, how we do things. Okay, but let's pull things back and put this into the historical perspective right. of this country you know, of where you grew up in the South. And let's, mm -hmm. let, let me help you understand why some people, myself included, are highly, will be highly offended if we were ever to hear you say something like this. And so, and it, it's, again, the overwhelming piece, when I teach multicultural, it is one of the most exhausting things that I do over the course of any given semester. One, it's a lot of content, but also the level of processing and the level of patience that I have to tap into to help facilitate this discussion, it can be a lot. Yeah. But I also feel like it is part of my responsibility to help navigate these conversations. Because again, when I go back to the whole, you know, Cowboys and Indian or sitting Indian style and not myself understanding how horrible, right. you know, like the microaggressions that, that I was really engaging in when I was saying those things. Yeah. And so that that helps me be ready to sit here and support my students. Now, if I get in a space where, you know, and I, fortunately I haven't had it, if a student is kind of like resistant, 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 you know, we have things in place to, to address those things. But again, the thing that helps us being counselor educator is we are in a space, we are in academia, like literally you're here to learn and to grow. So we always kind of default to that. Now, as far as, the broader community as far as mental health is concerned. I know we've talked about being intentional on sites that we pick for our students, you know, because we want to make sure the supervisors there are culturally competent and that they're going to be 
you know, a way, you know, we don't want our black students or students of color experiencing microaggressions when they're out in a community doing work and things like that. I, I remember being a young clinician and sitting with a, another seasoned um, professional and we were talking, I was getting ready to take a case on and they threw something out, which it took me a minute to realize what they had said. They were, and I was like trying to, they were helping me, giving me tips on how like the best way to, like, to be efficient in doing intakes. I was doing inpatient at the time. And if you know anything about inpatient, that can be overwhelming. It's a lot because mm-hmm. the client is coming in, you're having to do like your complete intake in one sitting. So they were trying to help me. The team was trying to help me figure out what to streamline it. So I'm not in there for like five hours. And so I was, you know, they're like, you know, family stuff, da da da. And then one client, but like, well, you probably don't have to worry about the father information. Mm. And then it hit me later. I can't remember when exactly, but I'm like, the fact that you are a white person saying this about a black client, where's this coming from? You know, are you tapping into the stereotype that, you know, most of, you know, most of black males in the community are not there for their kids. They're, coming from single parent homes that's led by the mother, what up, you know, like, and as a young clinician, I'm just like, okay, I'm not really sure what that meant. But if I was my current self in that situation, I would have been like, time out. What do you mean by this? You know, to kind of challenge that narrative, because again, if that's the part that can be detrimental within the mental health field, which is one piece and I'm really being a stronger advocate for the black community, helping my black people know the difference between good therapy and bad therapy and to understand that that, hey in therapy you could end up experiencing some racism prejudice some microaggressions and this it might look like this it is okay for you to sever a therapeutic relationship if it's not meeting your needs um for whatever reason it could be with a black therapist it could be with a white you know doesn't matter the race of the therapist but if the relationship is not helping you grow and you're feeling, you know, some kind of strong emotional reaction, like you have to evaluate that piece. Um, and so that's one thing to them trying to do, be more intentional. Cause like, I feel like as black professionals in the mental health field, we're like, come to therapy, come to therapy, come to therapy. But we haven't necessarily always talked about what good therapy looks like, right? What a good therapist should be looking like, how you should be feeling when you're going into therapy and coming out and things like that. And it's not all butterflies and rainbows. It's going to be challenges. But if you are not feeling comfortable, if you're not feeling connected, you know, there's certain markers of even things that a therapist could say that could be like red flags uh, for, you know, people to be aware of. And so again, it's multifaceted. Um, going back to the exhausting piece, because like, even as I'm listening to us talking, I'm making notes of like, oh, this is some other things that... <laughs> Yeah. I could be doing to help the community, um, but I feel like I see it as a privilege being in a space to be able to contribute in an area that is of need for our community. Like mm-hmm. I know sometimes I'm overwhelmed and I'm tired, but I rather feel that way knowing that what I'm doing is meaningful work and that it's going to be of help for our community and to continue to move us forward. And so I don't want people to to look at this uh, podcast or listen to this podcast and be like, who I don't wanna <laughs> I don't wanna go into the mental health field because that sounds exhausting. Like, yeah, it's it's hard work, but it's rewarding work and it's work that's needed. 
Um, and so, yeah. and it's not it's to take into account the current the recent events right. have uh, obviously have taken place that that can be a discouraging you know uh, uh, added piece that obviously would shy people away from mental health or even going into the field but yeah to your point about the whole idea that this this most consistent uh, misnomer that's being put out there is that the father is not there and typically enough we've seen it time and time again obviously me being a product of that I can I can truly speak to those those issues that I've dealt with with not having my father around but that's not to say that black fathers aren't there at all because there are a number of black fathers who are actively involved in their child's in their children's lives uh, making sure they're not only providing for them but also nurturing them loving them showing them that they are much more than what the world tells them that they are you know and me being a father to a daughter I'm always instilling that in my daughter to understand too that listen you are a beautiful young woman you're going to be a, a phenomenal individual and human being when you go off into the world to make a difference however whichever avenue or way you you choose to do so you make sure that you never let anyone tell you especially not a man to ever tell you what you can and cannot do in this world and so those type of things have to always be instilled in our children from from the from the father specifically because of the fact that that misnomer that's consistently being thrown out there that hey you don't have to worry about the father not being there because he's about she probably don't even know who, who his name is mm. that that's so undoubtedly one of the most consistent things that's being put out there that we obviously have to make sure we address like hey uh yeah i know i know who the father of this child is I, and this father is in this child's life okay so you can throw that out of the window so Plus, to have to always have to correct people in that regard. That's it's really unfortunate, but that's something that we don't we do have to do. One of those added things that we have to worry about doing in everyday life. So, I want to transition to a question that obviously is away from the pandemic necessarily, but dealing with the the issues that we're dealing with right now as Black people, the the racial injustices and the social uh, or just the racial inequalities and the police brutalities that's been taking place. Now, this is something that has been going on since slavery and obviously the the institutes and the and the systemic aspect of it has been planted in there thereafter slavery was abolished and at least we thought it was and so the the way the structural way that policing has been done in this country has been all the same for far too long so these these police brutalities have been going on this is nothing new and so obviously highlighting the recent events of the george floyd of the rihanna taylor's of uh, the uh, Rayshard Brooks, and even with the uh, Ahmaud Arbery situation to a lesser degree, because obviously those particular individuals who were involved with it weren't necessarily uh, police officers, but they, they acted authoritatively, if, if, if that makes any sense. And so I want to speak to just the overall emotional and psychological damage that you all would say has taken a toll on us as a Black people when in regards to dealing with these police brutalities and just the overall inequalities from a, from a judicial standpoint with seeking that justice, the very justice that is supposed to be granted to all of us as law-abiding taxpaying citizens of this country. But obviously uh, we're at a disadvantage when it comes to seeking or getting that justice that we rightfully so deserve. So, you know, the floor is yours. I, want, I definitely want to know from your standpoint, from a mental, a mental health standpoint, psychologically and emotionally, what, what damage has that done or taken a toll on us as Black people that you all can speak to that, you know, that resonate with you in such a way? Uh, Dr. Hofstad, you can go ahead first. Um, uh, so before we transition into this question, I just want to 
get a little tidbit. I know we're almost at an hour and a half. So like how much do you, I, I want to be mindful as I respond because I don't want to. Okay. Well, you know what? That's okay. a good point. Sure. We probably could. We probably could go there. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I want to make sure I, I'm clear about this too. So I did set it for an hour, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the floor open for two hours. So th this, okay. is, this is the very platform that we have, that I've started to make sure that we okay. highlighted these, diff these different issues that we want to speak about. And for as long as we need to take, we can speak on. So th this okay. is called Speak to the Mic. You know what I mean? So we're speaking <laughs> truth to power, and we're going to talk about these damn things that, that obviously are, are detrimental to our community and what we need to do to better assist ourselves in as a effort. Because we need to be monolithic when it comes to these, these very pressing issues that have been pressing far too damn long and so yeah, yeah the floor is no, i i fair i will be mindful i probably can do another 30 minutes and then i'll have to get home so i would go all night okay but i will i will come back though if i need to to continue this conversation i think it's that important um oh, yeah it, it, yeah. it is part two to this absolutely um so you know when I answer your question, really thinking about the psychological impact of what um, this second pandemic, which we have been going on, has been going on for 400 years for Black people, um, you know, I, I think the one thing that keeps coming to mind, um, I can't think of the actual term that was used, but it was the actual viewing and having to see on social media played over and over multiple videos being posted of these incidents happening and the actual impact that it's having this this almost this the compassion fatigue we, i talked about earlier um and almost numbness that i uh, was speaking to a lot of black people that we were experiencing almost this um this sense of numbness but also helplessness mm -hmm. that occurred it was a wave that hit and um I, I know for for most of us it was not again 2014 2015 2016 was hard was hard hard years uh, and I was in my PhD during that time. And so I was dealing with that and calling out like a lot of white fragility. It, it was difficult and it was uncomfortable. And I felt like that was like, we, we had some momentum. And to see it go dormant and then come back again, it was like, I don't know if I have anything to give for myself mm -hmm. personally and the peers that I was talking to who, who we went through. We protested together back then with Mike Brown, Trayvon Merton, um, thinking about um, Orlando Castile. Like we were just, exhausted so when it came up again there was just numbness and i know for for my partner especially my my husband romeo i mean there was just like this blankness that i saw his eyes and he just you know i think now it hit harder because we have a two and a half year old son liam and um you all know him very well um but for the viewers i mean that for me the connectedness to not only having um seeing bodies consistently but also uh, men my father, my husband, my my son, and hearing people talk about that, it did something different, I think, to the for the black community, especially not only 2015, 2016 Trump era, it just we were just like exhausted. And that's what I saw mm -hmm. happening um consistently, the psychological impact and almost like this wave of just like knowing some people knowing when to leave social media. Some of us had to literally remind each other you have to get mm -hmm. off you have to take care of yourself because this you're almost going to the point where i myself even seeing the uh, amy cooper 
woman mm-hmm. um, calling on, um, I can't think it was Christian Cooper, I think it was, about the bird watching incident. Yeah, I'm literally I'm that. Yeah. playing it in my mind, literally playing it verbally, could remember it, could visually see it. And that's where we know trauma. That's literally that, um, um, what is it called? Flashbacks, like almost mm-hmm. as if we're experiencing it and occurring for us in our, in our actual moment. I could feel what it felt like. And, and, and the people I were talking to, people online, we were just the vomit that was coming out because we were, you know, once again, COVID. So we're all stuck in the house. We can't really go and process with our groups. So we're doing it on social media. And a lot of just, I saw a lot of numbness and a lot of raw emotion that was just unable to place it. Um, and so that was, to me, the psychological impact this time around that I think was very specific and different compared to the other experiences we've had having to deal with the social media yeah. presence if I can exactly say and I think the, the the term I'm thinking Dr. Hoff said that you might be trying to tap into is racial trauma yeah yeah, um, yeah. when yeah. so it's basically it's not necessarily saying that you the individual have experienced the same thing but it's because the 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 the, the unfortunate event that the that you're watching resulted as a direct link to that person's racial identity and so you also being of the same race you have it it's like this thing of it could have been me it could have been my brother it could have been my dad it could have been a friend um and so those realities and and the fact that this can happen to any of us and like you know the the um the anxiety that i feel when you know, I see cops, you know, that's part of, you know, if you talk about PTSD and the symptoms of PTSD, like some of these things, you know, not being able to sleep or having flashbacks to some of these videos and uh, overwhelming a, a amount of anxiety, uh, you know, it, it's all linked to it. So I do think uh, social media has played, has kind of been a gift and a curse in regards to this go around. Um, the gift being that now there's actual tangible documentation um visual you know documentation of what's happening to us the things that we're being subjected to but in the same breath we're being subjected to watching it and, and, and it's you know re-traumatizing ourselves when we're watching those videos and things like that like i personally have not watched any of the recent videos because i know myself and how mm-hmm. i deal with things and so like i will read even just the description has you know, hit hit me. So I knew had I watched um, any of the recent, you know, actual recordings, I, it would have taken me to a place that I don't need to be. Um, again, this similar to you, Dr. Hobbs, that this go around, I'm a mother. And so it's like, before not having that responsibility, you know, I could kind of, um, I guess, kind of stress myself a little bit, kind of stretch myself emotionally a bit more but not being mindful that I have a whole human being that's dependent on me. And she's two now will be three in September that I'm like, I can't be all the way tapped out because unfortunately I can't have a conversation with my child to trying to help her at least understand. It's like, so trying to make sure that I'm okay emotionally to not stress her out and put her in a bad space. Um, and so th- that's the thing that we're battling with. And I think, um, I don't know, the, the combination of the recent unfortunate instances that we have endured within the Black community, plus um, the COVID-19 situation. So you, you're being hit on, you know, multiple levels. And as we know, again, talking about the systemic 
uh, racism, the fact that, you know, black people, we were being, we are being impacted um, greater by COVID. So we're like, oh my gosh, we got COVID. Oh my gosh, we're still getting killed. We left and right and being disrespected and being marginalized. And so it's this, you're, you're being hit on every level because before, you know, we still had our normalcy, right? So still doing our regular thing, going to work and things like that. But when we, the last three, four or five months, we've been plugged into social media to a higher capacity because of social distancing and quarantine. So it's like, I can't, like, I, I know I have consumed way more social media and, and technology and whatever and since February than I typically do. And part of it is because you are in the home and you're not really doing much else, uh, even if you're working, you're working from home. And so being that plugged into trying to maintain some level of connections with friends and family so you can have some, some social interactions. But then when it turns and those platforms are not being filled with images and videos and constant discussions about what we continue to endure and sometimes engage in some of those conversations, it's not taking away something that was actually helping us, you know, deal with the social distance. Thing. It's tapping into that ra racial trauma and that frustration. And that and Dr. Hofstad touched on it too. A lot of us are feeling helpless. Like mm -hmm. when you're like, my goodness, this has been, we've been dealing with this. It's 2020 and we're still having this conversation. We're still fighting uh, for, you know, to be treated, to not be killed in the streets. You know, like, hey, you know, if I'm doing wrong, cool, you know, come and address me. But how come if I look like me or we look like us, there's a like the higher chance that we would end up dead versus the situation being de-escalated, maybe me being, you know, taken to jail and being dealt with through the system, right? Yeah. And so it's those things where it's just, again, COVID forcing us to be more engaged and more plugged in has hurt us and our inability to unplug. And so, right. again, part of the things that I have tried to normalize on my, uh, using my platform on, Instagram and, uh, and Twitter is to encourage people like, hey, you don't have, don't continue to subject yourself. If you need to unplug, that is okay. Um, you don't have, just because you're black doesn't mean you have to be in the knowing. It doesn't mean you need to watch the videos. It doesn't mean you need to have, to be part of every conversation. It is okay for you to be like, you know what? I'm done for the day, the week, whatever you need to do, because if we don't do those checks, we that's again this is where you're going to end up being in a really bad space emotionally and uh and psychologically because you're continuing to subject yourself to this to these uh unfortunate um things um not, not subject yourself but continue to yeah, psychologically like experiencing this yeah. this trauma and, and we need to label what it is it's trauma it's traumatic as a yeah. black person to log onto your social media and see somebody who looks like you being victimized mm -hmm. by the pe the very people that are supposed to be protecting the community. Uh, and you knowing that, you know, regardless of why you ended up in that space, like you see, you turn around and look at another video where somebody who is white uh, is doing the exact same thing or something worse. And for some reason, 
you know, consistently and continuously, they're being able to de-escalate the situation and they, you know, they cuff them up and take them, you know, take them in or whatever and they get processed. And I'm like, well, why can't the same thing happen? <laughs> you know, right. you know, if I'm acting belligerent, please come and deal with me. But if you can show, if you can sit here and deal with this white woman when she's being belligerent, you can calm her down and take her in. Why can't you do the same thing for me? You know, when you're dealing with me or people that look like me. And so it's kind of like this, constant you know like the, the, the constant of double consciousness was like okay i see what you're saying but i also know what i'm experiencing what we're experiencing within our community and it's just not it's not adding up and so and okay, all in all to say that social media and technology has been a blessing because now those who denied our experiences have no choice but to actually because it's in your face you got these videos you have you these pictures it, right? it, it's it's tangible you can't deny it but then in the same breath we who are being subjected to this uh, maltreatment are having to be reminded of right. our unfortunate reality sometimes uh, over and over again. Yeah, um, and he, yeah, and even to that point, like you said about social media, we obviously have to decompress. Dr. Williams, you and I have talked about this on a number of occasions when it comes to having a start and end time when being on social media, because consuming so much of that could drive you up the damn wall. You, it, it would literally drive you crazy if you're constantly night and day, when you wake up, when you go to sleep, mm -hmm. you're looking at everything on social media that's obviously already daunting and, and, and exhausting enough, is gonna make you angrier and angrier. The more, the more time you spend on those specifics as far as what's going on. And so, Having that start and end time, and then don't go and don't go past and exceeding that end time, and say, you know what, I'm gonna stay on a little longer and watch these videos. Me personally, I have watched those videos, and and, and it's done a lot of emotional and psychological damage to me personally. But understanding that I have to, as a black man, I have to stay abreast of what's going on at, at all costs, right? But with the understanding too that my I myself doesn't have to subject myself to all of it all in one day. It, again, there are a number of days to, to, to obviously zone in on these issues and talk about them and, and obviously view them on social media. But to that point, I have to be able to say, okay, let me step away from this. And so I want all of the viewers and listeners watching this episode to understand too that you yourself too are, you're, it's okay to step away from social media with it being so much to consume. Too much, too much of anything can ultimately end up being a bad thing. And so we have to do things in moderation is going to obviously speak to uh, the, the mental health that we obviously have to zone in and, and, and resonate, resonate with us as, as importance to take care of. We can't just take care of ourselves physically and not mentally, you know, so mm -hmm. those, th those types of things need to make sure we have at the top of our priority list of things that we're dealing with, especially consuming so much of this information on social media. And so yeah. my last question to you all before I even ask, you know, how Marlon, if I could add real quick, if I could yeah, add, I think something you said is really important. And, yeah. um, you know, for people, for the viewers to be mindful of, um, to, to further talk about, like, when do you know you've had enough of social media is really honing in what you talked about of knowing when it's so um, overwhelming and it's difficult where you are thinking about the video you're watching, you're like searching for things, you're getting riled up emotionally, you want to like, physically like hurt someone or you're just getting overwhelmed that's when you know okay so i gotta step away and so being in tune with your own self knowing when to to take a step away or, or to like know i need to just like sometimes even deactivate the account people are trolling me we're going back and forth on social media it's not being helpful so 
knowing how to take care of stuff because we still have to deal with this when we walk outside. The people who may be trolling you don't. They don't have to think about it. They can gain their self-preservation where they can protect themselves, even if they're not just white people. I've even seen, unfortunately, my Latinx community who, who have said things. They don't have to deal with the plight of being Black and dealing with racism to the extent that we have to. Um, and so, you know, I think that those are things for us to be mindful of when to, to, to stay aware. I, I agree with you with the, being aware of what's happening and knowing uh, in our communities, but also knowing when you feel yourself mentally and emotionally like being checked out and just not even engaging with family or, or children if you have them. Those are times that you have to just get, go find your community and get some support uh, and step away when it's appropriate. I just wanted to add that part. Exactly. And I think that that's, that's critical. Uh, and so as we're talking about the mental health piece and I was telling Mr. Williams that we're going to have to <laughs> do a part two because we're taking a moment of transparency. We was taking advantage of our beautiful daughter being, you know, taking her nap and now she has woken up and the house is awake. And so <laughs> we're going to wrap it up and do a part two, but uh, definitely what Dr. Yeah. Hoffman says about doing the self checks and understanding like, Yes, we won't. And a lot of people that I see, they want to be proactive and trying to figure out what can mm -hmm. I do? How can I yeah. contribute to the movement? But, you know, when you're starting to feel that emotional overwhelm, like you got to do it. You got to unplug. You got to decompress. Watch something that, you know, whether you're watching something or just going out and getting some fresh air, that doesn't make you any less for the people right. than you know somebody who's willing to sit in in, in process because what's happening is we're saying like that's that's racial trauma what you're experiencing that's literally what it is right. if you're flashing back to the videos you can't sleep you can't you start drinking more and you know using substance a lot more than you have before if you're drinking more smoking more doing things to trying to numb yourself or mm -hmm. trying to you know so you can sleep better that's the problem you know, mm -hmm. that's a problem. That's literally, if you want to look up the symptoms of PTSD, you're experiencing those. And so, and this is what we're saying, like, we got to make sure that we're taking, while we're fighting a good fight, we got to make sure that we're doing this mental checks mm -hmm. to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves. Um, and so I'm unfortunately going to have to jump off. I'm going to let Dr. Hofstad uh, wrap up with you. And I'm going to go see about our, our kid because she's, <laughs> she's up. <laughs> okay. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much, Dr. Williams, for Dr. Williams. what you've been doing. Oh. And I definitely appreciate your insight on this, on this particular matter as it pertains to uh, mental health. And this is my last question, uh, Dr. Hofstad, to you. Uh, mm -hmm. Just tell the viewers and listeners uh, how, they, how they can reach you, you know, your social media platforms, your uh, ways of contact. How can they actually reach out to you specifically and talk about I talk to you about those issues that they are having. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, you can, I really just have personal accounts. So you can find me on Facebook at Mary Hufstead. Um, my Instagram um, handle is at Diverse Council. Um, and so those are really the two platforms I utilize. As of now, there may be some updates. And so who knows by the next time this, <laughs> we do a part two, there may be some um, additive things. But if you also want to find me on Psychology Today, you can find me on there. If not, if I'm, I'm still not taking clients, but I could definitely refer you to competent um, counselors if you're in the Georgia area. But if not, I can give you other resources as well for that. So yeah, find me. And I'll definitely um, post all of your availability, your social media platforms, things of that nature. I'll post that as well as being able to post Dr. Williams's uh, uh, contact and her availability as well on social media and uh, be able to, you know, have everyone to reach out. Cause I know I've had several people reach out to me specifically asking about you two individuals 
as it pertains to just dealing with everyday life and dealing with these yeah. issues that we're dealing with today in society. And so I definitely appreciate your, your time and efforts for even speaking to me about this situation and about these issues that we obviously want to make sure we're highlighting on an everyday basis, coming together, having a collective effort to, you know, doing what we can to resolve these issues. Because, you know, when all else fails, no, if no one else has us, we, we got to have yeah. us more than anybody else has. And so absolutely um, well thank you for the invite and being you know to think of me to even add me to this it's a pleasure you know it's important to me i know we've had multiple discussions outside you know yeah, uh, just yeah, discussing absolutely. these issues and you know it's it's the work that we we can't wait for people to do the work we have yeah. to be willing to yeah. do it ourselves and so i'm willing to continue that fight on and advocate in any way possible so i appreciate the opportunity and if anybody please reach out to me if they're interested and want to know more the work i'm doing i i just want to continue to dedicate my work my life's work to this and i definitely appreciate your expertise from a professional standpoint with dealing with mental health this is very important and we have to key in on how important this is for us as in the black community and in the minority community in general. Uh, yeah. Because, yeah. Again, sometimes the weight that you don't have that you have to lose is not necessarily physical, right? So right. That, that mental and, and, and emotional weight has to be, you know, relief. You have to be relieved of that too, because yeah. that that can affect your. It can ultimately affect your physical health. And so, mm -hmm. um, what. I What I want to do is real quickly uh, just to transition over to this next segment that I, that I would like to call I'm finna cuss, which basically <laughs> consists of me talking about various issues that obviously are plaguing our community from from a unfiltered, uncensored and unapologetic way, because all too often we get to sweep things under the rug. We think we get to give you know, society a slap on the wrist and you know, we, we're entirely too nice when it comes to certain issues that we obviously need to be very much so aggressive on especially in a time like this and i want to specifically talk about just those very issues as far as us being too forgiving when it comes to uh the different things that we're having to deal with from a racial standpoint from a systemic institutional racism standpoint we're too we're entirely too fucking forgiving when it comes to these things so the point you brought up earlier, Dr. Hofstad, about Amy Cooper. So she's one of the issues that I have, right? So we we watched her in, in Grant Park in, in, in New York, obviously having a dog without a leash, and uh, Christian Cooper, the uh, the black man who obviously just politely addressed her and reminding her what the what the rules were, right, in that park, specifically as it pertains to having a leash on your dog. Now, with her looking at him, with the unmitigated gall of how dare you be a black person telling me to obey the law and abide by the law. Like who the hell do you think you are? And so me, for her to make up that, that character in her mind, 10 seconds it took her to make up that, that goddamn character that she made up as far as saying, oh my God, this is a black person right in my life. Please send help. Oh my God, I'm just distraught right now. Please, send help. I'm very nervous. Really? Yeah. Really? It mm -hmm. took you 10 fucking seconds to make, it, make that whole character up. And what resonated with me in such a way was the, the Emmett Till case, right? That it was a woman who accused him of whistling at her. It was a woman that accused him of, of looking at her, touching her, or, or obviously eyeballing her inappropriately that got him killed, that his family could do nothing about. And that's exactly what she did. And so for her to sit here and apologize all of a sudden, I'm not accepting that shit. 
I'm not from any white person for that matter. I, I will never, the one thing I want my listening and listeners and viewers to understand about me is I'm never going to apologize for what I say. I will apologize sometimes for how I say things because sometimes my delivery isn't always there, but I mean what the hell I say. And so, and I say all that to say this, white people who are racist don't apologize for that because we're not going to accept that shit. Don't ever apologize for how you feel because that's who you are. That, that's your makeup. Now, obviously, when the facts change, so should your opinion, right? So do your, so should your view on things. Now, it's not to say that people can't redeem themselves and obviously get to a place where they have a level of understanding and compassion about other people and other, and other ethnicities. Yeah, everyone is, is, is obviously, as human beings, we all capable of changing for the better. But for those who, who are stuck in those views, in, in, in that belief that your race is, is more superior than anyone else's, we're calling the bullshit out for what it is. And I'm not, and I'm not there having any sympathy for those who are losing their, 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 their jobs, uh, being able to not be able to, to provide for their families or for themselves. No, you put yourself in that damn predicament. Guess what? I don't feel a shit ounce of sorry for you for putting yourself in that situation. You don't apologize for how you feel because that's exactly who you are. Drew Brees, another damn person who I had to had to shed light on, especially given the fact that this not on one, but two occasions, he's been on, on record saying, hey, I'm going to stand for the, uh, for the national anthem. I'm going to stand for that flag, put my heart, my hand over my heart, because my grandfathers and father fought for that flag and fought for our country. Okay, this is your second goddamn time saying that shit, and then it might check you the first time about it. So the first time you said it, it was during the time when Colin Kaepernick, my brother, of course, spoke up about these very issues that we're now just now seeing now. And it's unfortunate that it took a damn pandemic for people to finally see the goddamn light and say, oh, I cannot believe this shit was happening. Well, what the fuck took you so damn long? Like, we, like you've been, you think we've been making this shit up? Like, are you serious? We've been telling you that this has been going on for far too long, and yet it took something like this to keep us at bay and have to result to seeing this in real time or on social media to realize that these very issues do exist. Wow, I can't believe black people are being treated like this. Well, where the hell have you been living? You've been living on a rock or something? Because for you to not see this, it, I, can't, I can't sit up here and excuse the ignorance anymore because the, the, the I don't knows, any, I can't excuse those people who say that, that they don't know because you have too much to go off of to find out what those very things are that you don't know. Don't take the time and say, oh, well, you know what, you can teach me. Listen, it's not my job to tell you or teach you exactly what the hell is going on and what's transpiring as it pertains to Black people in this country. You have enough information out there being put to you, enough books being authored, enough uh, articles being published, enough damn social media platforms to go off of to tell you exactly the very damn issues that we're dealing with, we've been dealing with. The way things are, are the way things were. It's always been that. And so don't sit up and tell me you're just now catching on to the very plight of our, our struggle, the very plight of, our, of what Black Lives Matter, the Black Lives Matter movement specifically is for us to sit up and tell you, hey, we matter too. We're not sitting up here telling any damn body that we matter more and we damn sure ain't telling you we, like, we matter less. So for anyone to just hijack the premise of what the Black Lives Matter movement means, it's a, it's a pure disrespect and it's a disservice to those who are obviously understanding the plight of this, of this movement with the understanding that we are telling you 
that the way black people are being treated in this country, in this world, it's unfair and it, it's unjust, okay? So now don't, don't take it for anything else less than that. It's obviously, uh, it's obvious that you either don't care or you only care but so much of it. And so my point to bringing this up is the Drew Brees situation, Senator Peart, uh now I want to apologize. He didn't apologize so goddamn much that I can't even remember when the actual root of his apology was or what it was. And so for me, I'm not accepting the apologies from people who have obviously made it known who they are, what they stand for, and what they're about. Okay, you only have two, you only have two choices. You're either for racism or you're against it. You can't be both. You can't be playing the fence. You can't be, uh, I don't know, I don't have a, a dog in this fight, or it's not my issue. No, it's everybody's damn issue. If it's going to be our issue, it's not going to be our issue alone any fucking more. It's going to be your issue now, too. So my problem is your problem. And if I have a problem, if I'm not okay, then you better not be okay with it. And that's the whole point of this whole situation. So white people understand this. There are enough education and, and, and information out there for, for at your feet for you to actually go and look for to find out the, the actual issues that we've been bringing up for so long to obviously be that more light is being shed on it now. Because now we're finding more cases that obviously either didn't have any recordings at all or we're finding more cases that happened years past uh, and that we're just now hearing the FBI having investigations on. The situation that happened with the young man, uh, uh, McLean, down in, in, in Colorado, 23-year-old young man, minding his own business, coming from the damn store, ends up dead at the hands of not only the police, but the damn paramedics who, who issued some type of, med some type of medication in, uh, injected in his heart that stopped his heart from beating. He's 23 years old and he was an introvert and he made that clear even in the, in the, in the video that I saw when he was being arrested, being apprehended and being slammed to the ground, being choked, telling him, telling him, telling the police there, I can't breathe. And so too many times we've been saying this and that you all haven't been listening until now. Now you have no choice but to listen because we're gonna make you listen to this shit because it's not fair that if one, if, Crime is crime no matter who commits it, it it's, and it should be. So if you're going to apprehend us that way, make sure you do the same thing. Keep that same energy for, this, for the white counterparts that we have dealing with the same issues. Don't tell me you're going to sit up here and slam and chokehold one of ours, but yet Dylan Rolfe down in South Carolina gets to go to the goddamn Burger King in a goddamn bulletproof vest, and you politely arrest him. That's bullshit, and we're done, we're done tolerating that. And so for me, I want to make sure that I'm always very, very thorough about this particular segment about me cussing because I'm so frustrated with all these different issues that we're having to deal with. And even, even to counter that, we're talking about the issues with our own black people. You have people like Terry Crews sitting up here saying stupid shit with, in regards to, oh, if we, don't under, if we don't help people understand the plight of uh, Black Lives Matter, then it's going to become an issue where it's about black supremacy. Who the fuck said that? Like, where, where are you getting this information from? Are you, are you yourself saying this, or are you entertaining the notion that you have white people who are obviously behind the scenes telling you or paying you to say these things? Now, I'm going to also make sure I make this clear. On this show, I'm not only highlighting and recognizing those who are making an immediate impact in the community, in our Black community, but I'm also calling out the goddamn people in our community who are, who are claiming to have our best interests at heart, claiming to be about our agenda, but pushing their own personal agendas uh, to the forefront and, and masking it as the agenda for the black community. We're not tolerating that shit either. It's not going to happen. 
we have too many people, too many black people, especially celebrities, and this is not to slight the celebrities in any way, but I feel like the black elitists or the black celebrities who are privileged in, in, in certain instances tend to get out there saying stupid shit without doing their due diligence and homework on what those situations are, especially knowing that most of them come from the same background and, 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 and just communities that we come from. So for you to forget that, and then all of a sudden, okay, because you're wealthy and well off and have a big million dollar, $2 million mansion, that you forget exactly how the struggle is for being black. Because you yourself going through it too, to a, to, a, to a certain degree, just not to the same degree that we're going through as everyday individuals in this, in this, in this everyday life. So even as a black celebrity, you're still going through uh, racial discriminations and, and, and even gender discrimination as well. So those things can't be ignored. But don't sit up here and, and get to your platform to talk stupid shit about what's, what's not happening versus trying to basically mask what our agenda is to basically be your own, to fit your narrative, fit your agenda. We're not going to tolerate that shit. And so I want to make sure I'm clear about that. The Kanye's of the world, the Candace Owens's of the world, Ben Carson's, uh, a lot of these different black people who are in, in privileged positions, you're doing enough to appease your white counterparts. The very second you, you do anything or say anything that they don't like, that they don't like at all, trust me, you'll be, you'll be welcoming or you'll be wanting us to welcome you back on this side of the damn fence and saying, oh, black people, please welcome me back because, you know, they, they claiming that I'm, I'm, I'm just like you. Well, you didn't see that shit beforehand? Like, really? Like, you don't have a mirror in your goddamn house to tell you that you are black. Or at least we would like to think that you are. But people like Candace Owens, I don't think she's black. She's just a dark-skinned white woman because she pushes the narrative that we all, all we want is a handout, is black people. No, that's not the hell, that's not what we want. We want an equal playing field. I don't, I don't want anything to be given to me. I, want, I don't want to be hired because I'm black. I just don't want to not be hired because of it. And that's the problem. See, a lot of those different issues happen too often, and yet it gets, it gets pushed to the back burner. It gets ignored entirely too much. Until now. It took a pandemic to get us here, where we are. In year 2020, we're still fighting some of the same damn issues that our fathers, grandfathers, and, and their grandfathers have been fighting for the last 400 fucking years. And I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. And we're going we're gonna to put an end to this. And we shouldn't have to wait until we're dead and gone to, to be basically enjoy the fruits of our labor with our children to see that we are obviously now at a place of equality now. We shouldn't have to do that. Our parents and their parents sacrificed that already. We shouldn't be having to make the same sacrifices that our parents and their parents made in, in, in generations past. That time is over. And so for me, I want to make sure that I let everyone know who comes on this, on this podcast show that I interview to vent and let your frustrations out because, damn it, this is going to be a platform that's judge-free and obviously unapologetic about it too because we, we need somewhere where we can obviously vent in such a way that we obviously can, can relate in so many different levels in so many different ways. And so this platform is specifically designed for that to highlight those different issues that we're having, but also give shit light on those who are making the difference. You know, oftentimes the, the celebrities, they're doing their things and, and, you know, obviously donating, but it gets trickled down to a third party to where the person who needs it really isn't really getting it, getting much of it if there's anything left for them to get. And so, Versus the people who are in the trenches, in the, on the front lines, making an immediate impact. Those are the people I want to highlight and recognize on an everyday basis because they don't get recognized enough. And so I really appreciate from the bottom of my heart what you guys do 
on an everyday basis in your professions and in your everyday life in general, because it's very important how mental health is, is, is so vital to us as Black people. We've dealt with so much, we've swept so much under the rug as far as family issues go that we haven't tacked on. And we've been told too many times, hey, just suck it up, deal with this, don't cry about it, just keep going. See, but the world's been telling us that shit for far too long. So that, 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 that adversity that we've had to overcome, that's, that's unnecessary. We shouldn't have to overcome so many different hurdles and so many obstacles to get to a place of success for us to actually enjoy it. And so for me, like I said, I wanna make sure that I'm always very conscientious about that and highlighting that because, again, to, to those white individuals who don't see the ignorance that, that, that they're spewing, oh, we're going to call that shit out for what it is. Because, again, we're not accepting any apologies from any goddamn person who's sitting up here telling us, hey, uh, well, we're going to fight, we're going to stand up for this flag. Well, do you know, you, you, you're making that argument against us, but yet you have a group, you have a group of people who are obviously toting around swastikas and confederate flags so you're telling me you have a problem with us saying hey america says you so goddamn great won't you prove it tell us prove it that you're going to uh, uh, provide us with liberty equal equality and justice for all not just for y'all okay but yeah it's a pro it ain't a problem when you're seeing people toting around flags that ain't even from this country you, you see them toting around flags that is uh, treasonous against this country. But you okay with that, though. You ain't speaking on that, but you're gonna speak on us saying, hey, I'm just uh, trying to uh, basically uh, uh, hold America accountable for the very principles and objectives that they, they claim they stand for. Okay, if you stand by that, then prove it. But don't sit up and tell me it's wrong for me to bring that up when you're not even, even uh, specifying or addressing the issues of people having a neo-Nazi uh, flag and Confederate flag that was fighting the right to preserve slavery, like that's ridiculous. Don't 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 tell me you apologizing for that because you didn't speak on that shit. So don't don't speak to us about what we're doing, what we're bringing up. Like we have the audacity to bring up America's real troops because America been lying all this goddamn time. And so now we're at a place where you know what, America because you spend so much time saying you're the greatest country in the world without any definitive proof of it, prove it. We, we want to love this country just as much as you want us to love this country. But guess what? If you're not giving us any reasons to, then why shouldn't we? And so even at the, at the start of this show, I wanted to say happy 4th of July, but the, the way I feel right now, I, I, I'm not in a celebratory mood when it comes to this country. And so I'm just gonna tell you all happy Juneteenth. That, that's what I'm gonna say. Because that, that's our independence. I'm not going to speak or celebrate something that didn't want to celebrate me as a, as a person. The, mind you, it's still in the Constitution that we're three-fifths of a person. We're not even human. We're fighting human rights. We're fighting the right to be equal. And we're fighting the right to just be Black in this country or in this world for that matter. And we're fighting too many damn fights and ain't winning none of them. That's the damn problem. And so that will no longer be a problem for our generation generation after us, and even a generation for our children and grandchildren as well. We will get to a place, I'm very optimistic about this, we will get to a place where we can obviously say, okay, after all that fighting, we're here now. This is where we are. America has finally owned up and, and, and accounted for all its fuck-ups and, and wrongdoing that it's done to not only us as Black people, but as minorities across the board. 
America has finally owned up to its own troops. This is who America really is, saying, you know what, we did this, and it was just disheartening, dehumanizing what we've done, and we want to make it right. So this is your chance. America, this is your chance to make these things right, because you know it's not right. And for you to see it now, okay, 2020, you just now seen it. So again, I want to thank you all for, from the bottom of my heart, for being on this show. This being the first episode, I'm very excited about this. And definitely, we're going to have a, a part two to, to mental health, because obviously, speaking to the importance of it even further, I'm definitely going to have you all on the show again, and definitely going to have time to speak to your husband, uh, Dr. Hofstad, as well, in, in regards to mental health in this field for Black men, because obviously, we're, we're not being represented enough in this field either. So it's just that, that, that window, it's, it gets smaller and smaller the more you go down to gender and race. And so mm-hmm. that, that's something that, we, that has to be highlighted and, and spoke about. So again, uh, Dr. Williams, um, I'd like to know, or the listeners would like to know, how can they reach out to you as well on your, your platforms, your social media, your availability, all that good stuff. So social media, Dr. Dr. O-U-W, I'm sorry, Dr. Dr. O-U-W on Instagram and Twitter. And I have my linked tree on both platforms. So if you just hit that link, it would take you to everything about me. So as far as like how you can reach me, um, so if you're interested, I guess, in counseling services, you can go through that. Pro- like once you find my link tree, you can contact me there. Uh, if you're interested, if you have questions about mental health in general, academia, if you're interested in going to mental health field, and if you're interested as far as like having a conversation around uh, graduate programs. I'm always open to that conversation. Uh, and I know you mentioned that there's going to be a part two to this. I would suggest, I know this is, this is your thing. Uh, if people, if like your listeners and viewers wanted to like send in questions, uh, maybe there could be some things that we missed. I know we were talking in general, but if there are specific questions that maybe people had, um, whether about mental health like services specifically, if you're talking about the mental health field in general, there's a lot of um, confusion. Like, you know, what's the difference between a counselor? You know, why do you say counseling or therapy versus, you know, what do social workers do, what the counselors do, what the psychologists do, what the psychiatrists do? <laughs> so it's a lot, you know, different terminologies and lingos and stuff. So if people have questions about that, we can definitely do like a Q and A Q&A next time that's coming from the people if they have specific questions. Yeah, absolutely. And if you if you guys would like to provide any any additional information as far as services go, then yeah, feel free to do so uh, at, at this time. But if not, then I definitely um, you know I appreciate you all for what you do in, in this particular field. We know how important it, this particular field is as it pertains to just our overall health. And so I want to make sure that the, the listeners understand that physical, mental, emotional health is very important. We can't just focus on one area and not the others. So every every last one of these areas need to be focused on equally and much more uh, in in our Black community. So again, I I really appreciate you all taking the time to be with me and and, uh, have this discussion. And uh, yeah, I definitely will will inform you all on when the the part two of this will happen. I'll definitely uh, make sure I post those questions uh, that the viewers and listeners may have. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting us and I appreciate, I look forward to part two. Um, I'm going to 
now spend some time with my family. So I would definitely talk to (laughs) y'all later. I I enjoy this, but I'm pretty sure the next conversation and when when Romero, Dr. Romero Hofstad gets on the call, I know it's going to be phenomenal for you all to talk about. um, Exactly. And thank you for having us as the um, inviting. And it's interesting because there's so many overlapping connections here with Dr. Hofstad, but thank you for um, inviting us to not only be on the podcast, but the first episode and the fact that it was focused on mental health, you know, that really, you know, really appreciate that because this is a conversation, like you say, like we have other people we, we can throw on here, uh, because mm-hmm. so many different dynamics is, is such a, um, complex topic that, you know, you can't really cover in one, uh, segment. And so I'm glad that you're going to do, um, future conversations from different perspectives because that's really that's really uh wonderful and i know we, we've trickled over into hour two so we can give you the links to some of the resources that you can put like in the little bio so your your uh, viewers and listeners can can go to those um resources but i know we're coming towards the end you know like, like yeah. hour two officially <laughs> but yeah. this has been a great conversation yeah. though so absolutely, absolutely. what happens <laughs> yeah and uh dr hofstad please uh give my regards to dr hofstad as well and let them know and Liam. We, we, we love you all we're thinking about you guys and uh definitely stay safe out here and um y- y'all yeah, too we'll, thank you yeah we'll, we'll definitely be in contact all right bye Congratulations on your first official episode. Yes. Yeah, congrats. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate that. I was was, was nervous at first. Yeah, and I was I was nervous at first, but once I started getting full of things and then then it just starts to flow out of me. And so this has definitely been something I've I've been really like contemplating on for a while now. But I understand how important this is to have these discussions and being able to not just bring mm-hmm. awareness, but bring forth some solutions that we can collectively come together with and say, all right, let's apply these things in our everyday areas. And exactly. Everyday life because it, it's needed. We, we, it's important for us to do so. So again, this is why it's called Speak to the Mic, because we're speaking the truth to power in the Black community as it pertains to what our issues are and how we can best just assist each other in the matter. Yeah. Again, I appreciate you all. And um, yeah. Yeah, uh, thank you for your time. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs>